True Crime Broads with Crystal and Renee. Hello, welcome to True Crime Broads. This is Crystal. And Renee. And thank you for joining us tonight. Tonight we have a big treat for you and I'll let Renee introduce our fantastic guest. I am so pleased to uh, announce that we have Bobby Chacon on with us here at True Crime Rods. Uh, Bobby worked and retired with the FBI for 27 years. He also worked as an attorney. He's been a writer for the well-known TV series, Criminal Minds. He was a camera expert on several TV shows, including It Takes a Killer, Deep Undercover, and he starred in Murderous Affairs and I Married a Murder. He often provides commentary to national news outlets and movies on FBI-related issues. We're so excited to have you, Bobby. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Crystal and Renee. Thanks so much. Bobby, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've been doing recently? And then I guess we can just dive right into the Mitzi Beavers case. Oh, sure, sure. So, um, yeah, so just a little bit about my background. Yes, um, as you heard, I was 27 years as an FBI agent. I was an attorney first, and then I came into the FBI. I spent the majority of my career in New York and Los Angeles um, and a little bit overseas. I lived both in Europe and the Middle East uh, during my time in the FBI. Um, and I worked all kinds of investigations from, from kidnappings to bank robberies to the mafia, the gangs. Um, I, I guess you, maybe one of the only things I didn't work was kind of counter espionage. Um, even though I was in New York where the UN is and we have a lot of that, um, I did not work a whole lot of counter espionage. I did work counterterrorism towards the end of my career when the FBI shifted in that way. And I went to Iraq in 2005 to teach at the Iraqi Police Academy uh, courses in counterterrorism. Um, so I then transitioned to uh, running the dive team, the FBI's underwater forensic team. And that was a, a real thrill because I took all the skills that I had developed as an investigator. And now I was working for other investigators that had cases in which evidence was found underwater uh, or thought to be possibly underwater that included guns and, and bodies and things like that. So I had a good foundation in investigations and I knew um, how the forensics could apply to help the investigation. And so I, I became a forensically trained uh, person uh, through the FBI laboratory um, the last uh, 19 years of my career. So- I listened to a podcast know, about your underwater forensic stuff. It's just really fascinating. Yeah, I did, I did investigations for 16 years, uh, give or take, and then it overlapped with the underwater forensic. Um, and I, um, uh, I did that for 19 years and there was obviously some overlap for, where I did both for a while. Um, and, you know, I was tasked actually with creating the FBI's underwater forensic program. Um, so I, I worked for the FBI laboratory and spent two years traveling around the country, talking to military and commercial divers and academic divers and scientific divers and, and took, you know, the best practices of all those programs. And, and we built a, a, what I was very proud of, a very good program within the FBI of underwater forensics and, uh, you know, That's traveled so all around cool. the world doing that. Hmm? Well, awesome. That is so cool. Thank you for joining us. We, I saw in the email, you mentioned that you had actually had some familiarity with the Missy Beavers case early on. I believe when the story broke, you said you covered it a little bit. Yeah, I, I do get called uh, pretty regularly now to comment on, you know, crime things and, and, and different cases that are happening. And, and when this case happened, I couldn't tell you the outlet, whether it was CNN or somebody else, but I, I remember reviewing the video from the church and, you know, and then I follow the, 
these kind of cases anyway that make it into the popular news cycle um, just because I might get called on them. And I do remember, you know, you know, very vividly and very specifically because, you know, because of that haunting video, right, that, that we're all drawn to and, and you know, which is, I, I think, you know, is part of the, <clears throat> the allure of this case and the draw of this case is that, you know, we, you know, it's, 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 like I said, it's haunting. We, we, and I'm going to, I'm going to, and I know there's a possibility that it's not, but I'm going to, I'm going to assume that person on that video is the killer. And, um, I, you know, it's always haunting when you see the killer, right? You visibly see them. Mm -hmm. um, because all too often, you know, you know, you, you know, somebody goes missing and, you know, you have no idea or you, you right. kind of think and this and that, but, but this is a case where like we all laid, uh, we're, we're laying our eyes on the killer moments before this horrific crime occurs. And so I think that, you know, I mean, I can see it now in my mind, you know, we, I think we can all just close our eyes and, and, and see him walking around, see him opening those doors and see his, and I'm, again, I'm assuming in my opinion, it's a male because of his gait, because of his shape, because of his size, and because of his mannerisms. Um, but, um, and that's why I'm using the pronoun he, um, but, you know, it's, it, you know, we, we're kind of drawn into it, like, you're, we're kind of, you're, you're in, you're living in those moments, because we're seeing them happen as they happen. And, um, you know, that's rare in, in, in these cases. And when you do have that, I think it draws a lot of attention, and it, it kind of, you know, we all have this this kind of visceral response to that, right? You know, and, and so I think that's why this case, you know, you know, sticks with people. Absolutely. Well, we really wanted to ask you uh, why, in a small town, this is not, you know, federal law enforcement's jurisdiction at all. This is Ellis County, small town, Midlothian, Texas. Why was the FBI involved in this case? What would you think? It happens a number of different ways, but the FBI has a program, um, two programs, one international, one domestic, but it's called the Domestic Police Cooperation Program. And what we have, we have an entire budget um, that's just set aside for our assistance to local law enforcement. And I can tell you, in when I was running the FBI dive teams, there were certain periods of time where, you know, upwards of 60 or 70% of the dives we were going out on were small jurisdictions that didn't have a dive team that would call their local FBI office and say, hey, do you guys have any resources, you know, and the FBI only has four dive teams spread around the country. So from Los Angeles, I would go up to Seattle or I would go to Colorado and I would be in a rural area and working for the, the tiny little FBI office in that area who was providing the assistance to the local law enforcement. So it doesn't always have to be a federal crime. Um, right. Oftentimes we're just asked. I remember I was training in Florida when, in 2003 when the space shuttle crashed and spent the next six weeks diving on the space shuttle. Now that wasn't a crime. We knew it wasn't shot down or anything, mm -hmm. but you know the FBI often lends its resources to national emergencies or certainly in cases that I've been involved with to small local and state jurisdictions that simply don't have the resources that we might have. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Um, in cases where they don't get solved, you know, this is almost five years ago that Missy Beavers was murdered. It's hard to believe it's been that long. Um, yeah. If you just sort of think about, generally speaking, a, a case that just doesn't get solved ever or soon, would you say it's due to maybe 
the police department might have missed something from the crime scene at the beginning or is it because they're covering it up or is it something else i mean each case is different i I don't don't think you could make a generalization about like when a case was cold cases go cold all the time for different reasons um and sometimes they're the reasons you cite you know but each case is different why a case goes cold you just have to have to look at it but people have, have to understand that you know Cases and you know, even though you might term them cold cases, there's there's always a possibility. In fact, sometimes with the passage of time, um, you get breaks in a case because somebody slips up, somebody makes a mistake, or somebody you know gets old and says something you know at a you know that they hid all these years. There's a lot of different reasons why cold cases get solved, um, and cold cases get solved every day cases turn cold every day and cold cases get solved every day. Um, and, and it's, it's a matter of sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes it helps when, when something goes cold because it, it allows witnesses or people to, you know, I've had cold cases where, you know, the people weren't talking simply because they were intimidated and the, and the people who perpetrated the crime were really bad people. But then, you know, 30 years later, those people are either old or died or in prison on something else or moved away. And those witnesses now don't feel the same, you know, intimidation or the same fear that they had initially when they weren't cooperating with the police and weren't saying anything. And so there's a lot of different reasons why, you know, you always stick with a case. And, and a lot of times a fresh set of eyes coming in is not any better than the original investigators. It's just you're taking it from a different angle and you may not have that, you know, there's always, you know, not always, but there's a lot of times you develop a little bit of a bias when you jump into a case from the beginning. And sometimes, and that's why like a lot of cold case investigators, you know, will take a look at a case that other people have had. And and it's not a judgment on the original investigators, but it's just a matter of taking it, you're you're coming at it from without any without any of those preconceived notions and, and those those possible biases you might have had, you know, right. or the original investigators might have had. You know. That makes sense. Yeah, we're just trying to guess all the time, you know, I wonder what happened, you know, because we, when we first all saw this, most of us here, you know, that were local, we thought, well, they have 28 minutes of this perpetrator on film on camera. And we just kind of thought it would be solved by the end of the week, at least by the end of the month. And we didn't know we were signing up to follow something for almost five years, you know, here in our own community. So it's yeah, particularly, particularly that video, because, you know, the more I watch it and I watch it again today, um, you know, this is someone with a, like, you know, and you guys have covered this before, but like it, with a very unique gait, like, mm-hmm. like if you imagine that wasn't, you know, you didn't, if you imagine that was a friend of yours who walked like that, not on, not on, in the church that night, but like if, if you had a friend that walked that way, you right. know, and, and you knew this friend for a long time and you grew up with it, or maybe it's even a family member. If you ever saw them on a tape or on, on film like that, you would probably go, oh, I know who that is, because it's a very distinct gate. And, you know, even it's like almost like a voice, you know, it's almost like a voice print. You hear somebody's voice, you know it. You, you know, we, we don't always know, but that, imagine your significant other or your, your parent or something, if they were shadowed, they were just in shadow. You couldn't see, you couldn't see what color they were. You couldn't see what, you know, the skin tone was. All you saw was their shape and you saw them move across a room. Well, you can identify that person, you know, because right. you, you know what they look like, you know, the shape, you know, how they move. And, and sometimes we don't realize we have that much, you know, data stored in our brain about these people that we're always around. And, and so like, that's why it's so important to push videos like that out 
you know, to the public and get them seen by as many people as possible. And that's why sometimes when, you know, when a documentary is made years later on a case, maybe somebody didn't see it. As odd as that sounds, especially in this case, maybe somebody didn't see it. And the person who, who needs to see it finally sees it and goes, I know who that is because of the way they're walking. In this case, it's the way they're shaped because they do have a particular body shape, even though they're, I don't know if they're trying to hide it, but they're, they're covered with, you know, what looks like kind of padding clothing and puffy clothing, but there's a, there's a basic body shape that you can, you can see there. And there's certainly a gait that you can see there, the, 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 the outturned feet, the one foot that's outturned more than the other. Um, and, and so you just, you just need somebody that knows who that person is to go, I know that's exactly the way so-and-so walks, uh, you know, and, you know, it could, it could still happen. Like I said, the more people that, you know, you know, see that video, the more chance that someone's going to go, I know who that is. We've had a few people that have um, contacted us. And I know, of course, the police also, their neighbor walks like that, or their friend walks like that. Um, it's, it's odd that there's, there would be that many, but I guess maybe there's just enough of a similarity that gave them the inclination to call maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's a double-edged sword of something like that. I, I remember, you know, years ago and, and, and aging myself, but this is probably in the early 1990s, one of my cases, I had a fugitive, and we put him on America's Most Wanted back then with John Walsh on Fox, Fox whatever it was. And, um, you know, we, I got like 800 leads the next day. And, wow. you know, probably 750 of them were not accurate. You know what I mean? Everybody saw this person. And, right. you know... This was a drug kingpin that ultimately had 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 escaped back to Jamaica. We we extradited him years later, and he's in jail now. But um, you know, I, we got calls. I know who that is exactly. The picture yeah. you showed last night. He's working in the Burger King. He's managing the night shift. And I'm like, <laughs> that's not my guy. This guy was making eight hundred thousand a week in Brooklyn. You know, <laughs> with his cartel, and that, that he's not managing a Burger King. But you know that you do get that, and and, yeah. and quite frankly, maybe the person was a spitting image of this guy. You don't know. Right. Um, but 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 I'd rather have too many of those leads than not enough. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather have a thousand leads, you know, that that take months and years to to track down than than have nothing to go on. You know what I mean? Right. That makes sense. Well, you know, and also you don't realize how many people kind of have, walk with a little kick until you realize you're on yeah. hyper alert. You know. And here in right. Texas, we sometimes call it a hitch and you're get along. You know, there's a lot of people that kind of have a little bit of a limp. And so it's kind of interesting how those people start standing out in the crowds now that we're all looking for this person. Yeah, but like, you know, like all you can ask for as an investigator is things that are going to narrow down your suspect pool, right? Because, I mean, theoretically, everybody else in the world except the victim starts out as a suspect. And then you just kind of narrow it down. And everything you can do to narrow that pool down, you know, helps. And, you know, I always, you know, in, when I went to, I went to homicide school because I was working so many RICO homicides in New York, our gangs that the NY, I went to the NYPD homicide school and, you know, the, you know, they put a Venn diagram up. So most of your suspects come from one of two different worlds, right? They come from the world of this, of the victim, or they come from the world of the location where the crime occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes both, but usually 99% of your subjects will have some connection to the victim, or if the victim's completely random, they'll have a connection to the location where it happened. Um, and you know, and we found like the successful serial killers are the one that can stay random to both victim and, and, 
and, and location. Um, but most people, so you look at, you know, Missy's life, you look at, you know, what was happening in her life, who was in her life, you look at all the people in her life, and then you look at all the people, you know, that lived in that area where the church was, or visited that, that church, or attended that church, or had anything, or cleaned the church, or whatever, had anything to do with the church, and you start to see, if, is there any overlap, right, is there any overlap, is somebody in both of those circles, right, and, uh, and, and so you do everything you can to start narrowing, and narrowing, and narrowing that pool of people, because, like I said, you start with everybody else in the world other than the victim as a suspect, and then you just just keep cutting and cutting and cutting until you have a, a you know, like in this case, you have a group of people, and like you said, a lot of people might have that little itch, but that's good. That you know, rule them out. Just go through the process. Yeah. Rule them out. Right. Rule them out. Rule them out. You know, and eventually, you 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 get to a point where you have enough people. You know, it's small enough, a small enough pool of people to kind of really start to take a hard look at them. That's kind of why I've always. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Renee. I was just going to say, that's kind of why I always wondered why they haven't uh, released any more um, of the surveillance footage, because we know we have, they have a lot more than what they, you know, put out. They put out two minutes and 26 seconds, I think, and mm -hmm. just have wondered why they don't put out just a little bit more, you know, just like they did in Delphi. They put out a little bit more uh, footage, and they got more tips in. Yeah, and but do you remember, I mean, even in Delphi, it took them a while to even do that. I mean, my my whole philosophy in my investigations was not to release anything. Um, I, the, the default position was always not to release anything um, unless it, it strategically helped the case. Um, and, and, and so you really have to do an analysis of what helps the case and what hurts the case because, you know, as an investigator, you're also looking down the road. If we, when we eventually catch this person, they're going to get a high-powered defense attorney and the defense attorney is going to attack everything we've done. Um, right. And if you let too much out there, so one of the things you do when you when you when you get a suspect, and especially when you get them initially into custody, is you start testing them and their story against what you already know. Now, that process is most effective when the public doesn't know the stuff that the police know, because when you're testing that person that's in custody, if it, if the stuff you're testing them with has already been released and everybody else out there knows it, then the fact that this person knows it is not, is, it, it's not as important, you know what I mean? If, right. if and, 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 and not that they, and I make it sound like the person's gonna give it up, there's a process to it, you trick them, you, there's, there's ruses you do, you, you, you do things to bring the suspect along, and this is a whole other avenue of investigation, of interrogation, um, which I also used to teach, but you bring the person along in a way that they're going to start saying things to you that only somebody at the scene would know. And right. it's it's a lot more subtle than than it sounds. Like you're like, oh my God, no one would ever say that. But I, I'm talking about small minutiae of detail and stuff that right that may, the, may not the be person they out. wouldn't realize it's key, but only the person that was there might know that. And so the more stuff that's out in the public arena the less of those things you can use to manipulate the interrogation process. That makes sense. Um, and so I would only, we would literally, and, and it's not only law enforcement at this point, especially in this case, it's, it's, it's a team with the prosecutor and ultimately the prosecutor has the, the, the ultimate say, right? So, um, you know, but we, I used to sit with my prosecutors and we'd go over it together and we'd say, what, what's the upside of putting this out? What's the downside of putting this out? And, and you weigh everything. And, and, and you do that periodically because if you do it a month after the crime and a year after the crime, the, that same analysis might yield a different result. 
um, because because all the factors change and the weighting of different factors changes um, as time goes on. So that's why you see like, you know, in Delphi, they released much more of the video that they had originally, but they deemed originally it there was too much of a downside to releasing it. And then as time went on, then they were like, well, we're running out of things. We're running out of leads. We need to kind of freshen this case up with the public's mind. Let's, let's, you know, let's, let's release this and, and see what happens. And so, like I said, the, the, that decision making process changes as time goes on and time does have an impact on it and stuff. And, um, and so it's a constant weighing and reevaluating of how much and what we should release for the public. And, and, and and really the public's desire to know or you know the the public's thirst for information on the case that's not a factor that's not a consideration my only my only goal and 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 quite frankly it 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 sometimes sounded cold when i when i say this but even the family of the victim <clears throat> thankfully now law enforcement has like these victim witness specialists and and i used to, and i was really glad when the fbi started a program like that where I could have a liaison deal with the family because my job is to find the perpetrator at all costs. Like uh, that's my job is the, and I have to very be mindful of the family. Yes, no doubt. And I did believe me as, as the leader of the dive team, I've looked into parents' eyes and have, to, have had to tell them their child was dead. Um, mm. That's, you know, I, I, I've lived that experience and I know the gravity of it. Um, but my job as an investigator, it, it, it's it's to be focused on finding this person and getting them justice. Not only finding them, but finding them in a way that we're going to get a conviction that sticks and they're going to go to jail for it. You know, if I'm too emotional, if I get too out ahead of myself or too over my skis, there's a good chance I could make a mistake that I get the right guy, but somehow the conviction is tarnished or, or tainted. You know, and that's the that's you know that's the worst scenario, right? You, you do all yeah. this work to find the right person, and then you've made a mistake, and you've tainted the jury pool, or you've made a mistake that's going to get it, make it harder to get a conviction if you get a conviction at all. So th there's a lot of pressure as you move through an investigation to not make a mistake that will haunt you down the road at a trial or a pre-trial hearing or in front of a jury. Um, and, you know, and so you always have to look at, you know, the release of information. You know, it can't just be so we tell the public. It can't just be so somebody out there feels good. It has to have a strategic importance to the case. Like it'll bring us something or <clears throat> it'll cause somebody to see something. You know, that's that's legitimate, not just, you know, we should put it out there so everybody knows what's happening in their community. Um, right. You can tell them that without showing them, you know, stuff that may be evidence later on. So, you know, I mean, you know, it, 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 is, it is a very tricky balance to you know, deal with the community who now, you know, you may have a killer, obviously you have a killer on the loose in your community. And so, you know, you know, the police have to, you know, balance all that stuff. But luckily, like when I was a, an investigator, like I said, I had, I had victim witness specialists that dealt with the families and inter, you know, and they would interact with me when they needed. And then I had bosses above me in the chain of command that would deal with the community and deal with the community leaders and talk to the mayor or talk to, you know, the church leaders or whoever the community was in that particular case. Um, and so I could, you know, focus on on the evidence, on the forensics, uh, on, on the facts of the case that, as we knew it. And, you know, because there were all these competing interests. And my only interest was 
how do I get the evidence that's going to lead to a conviction and get whoever did this heinous crime in jail for a long time? Right. You know, we don't know if perhaps law enforcement does know who did this and maybe they're just having a hard time getting enough evidence because, you know, they actually did a good job of covering themselves all up. Um, you know, people have been debating about gender and about how, how is this person really that big or is it padding, you know? So I guess they did a really good job of concealing themselves since it's been almost five years and there's so much video of the person. You know, it's really interesting. We really don't have a handle on what's going on in the investigation. They've been, they've done a really good job of keeping that tight lip like you were talking about. Right. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's possible they're zeroing in on someone? And that's our hope, of course, or yeah. I just wouldn't be able to tell. <clears throat> well, you know, I, you know, it's always, it's always possible. Um, and I, and I hope, you know, that that is the case. And, and, you know, you, you've seen cases like the Golden State Killer or, you know, even the Zodiac case, you see some of those more prolific cases where, you know, they'll tell you, they ultimately get the guy, but then they tell you that, oh yeah, years earlier, you know, we had brought that person in and interviewed them. They were in this small pool of people and yeah. we just never had enough to pursue that. You know what I mean? So you do get cases where the police kind of, you know, if, if the person's not like singular suspect, they're in a suspect pool and nothing ever happens. And then years later, it turns out to be that person and they arrest them and go to jail, you know, you know, that kind of stuff. So you, Hey, it went quiet. Yeah. Is Bobby there? I think I Bobby's connection, I think, got a little. Oh, no, it's something happened. It said, oh, there he is. We got oh. you back. <laughs> oh, okay. It, yeah, a thing back. popped up and said, tap here to speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're happy you're back. <laughs> wow. Zoom, you know how it is. Zoom could be pretty touchy. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, that's, that's, if, if, if they do kind of start getting an idea of who they think is good for this crime, then you'll even see more of a, of a lockdown on information because, Interesting. you know, that's the last thing you want. Number one, you don't want to spook the person to have them brought. They could leave the country, right. you know, they could leave the town, whatever. Um, you know, and, and, and so, you know, again, Believe me, there have been cases, you know, where the police want to make an arrest and the police go, you know, we, you know, and the prosecutors know we want a little more. And then every prosecutor I have ever worked with um, has wanted more evidence than I, you know, than I had, you know, even when you have like video or something, they always want more because um, they're the ones <laughs> that stand on their feet in court and need to get a conviction. If, if you lose the case, it's often, you know, the prosecutors often looked at as, you know, it's like the quarterback of a team. When you lose mm -hmm. the game, everybody blames the quarterback. So, um, you know, the prosecutors always want more. And there have been cases where the police go, we think we have enough. And the prosecutor says, well, we're not going forward until you get more and stuff. Right. And so, um, you know, you know, there have been certain high profile cases. I was involved with one that everybody knew that's been subject to movies and documentary stuff. And, and I won't say which one, but, but the police wanted to go forward with the arrest and the prosecutors wouldn't. And we actually flew the entire team to Quantico and we mock trial that we said he is, you know, for the benefit of the police, because we agreed with the police that they could make the arrest, that they should make the arrest. And, you know, we had uh, attorneys from the Department of Justice in, in our Quantico mock courtrooms, play the whole courtroom case out. And so, you know, put evidence up there and put the witnesses on the stand. 
And uh, in the end, they still didn't go forward with the, with the arrest and the prosecution. But um, you know, you know, there are times when you know law enforcement thinks they have enough, and the prosecutors are like, no, we don't, we don't think so. And the prosecutors are obviously are the ones that that are in charge of that and and this stuff. And so um, I'm not saying that's the case in this case, but you know th that that there there are there are sometimes differing opinions even among the investigative team of do we have enough? Do we not have enough? Right. That's interesting. Makes sense. Yeah. You hear that a lot. You know, one of the things that um, I know the police made a comment in the beginning was that they believed this was an isolated incident and the public was not at risk. Um, so they need to be like, you know, doing extra precautions, watching behind them or anything. How did they make uh, a statement like that without knowing who, it, who the killer is? Or does that typically mean that they probably do know who it is and they're just trying to prove it <laughs> again? Well, yeah, it could, it could mean that. It could mean, yes, we know. You know, we think we know who did it and why. Um, or it could be, you know, and one of the things is the mechanism of death and the autopsy results, right? You know, how 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 the the murder was carried out physically um, often tells you, you know, a lot. And you know, we've all heard the, the term rage killing, right? With his overkill and his, you know, you know, something like that, where, um, you know where the mechanism of injury goes far beyond what was needed to actually kill the person, right? Um, and I'm not saying this case, I'm just saying, uh, you know, in cases where you see like this rage of a killer, um, you know, that's usually a very personal matter. And usually it's a very, you know, that person had a, you know, had a real rage against that victim. And, and you can see that in the, in the actual mechanism of, of, of death and stuff. So, you know, I don't know, I haven't seen the autopsy reports or anything. So, they there could be something like that where you say like this 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 isn't somebody that would go around doing something this violent because this violence is associated with this person you know there's there's, there's emotion there there's rage this personal um, yeah yeah and if it's not and if it's very clean cut and it's very you know like you know and 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 you know a, the crime scene tells you a lot about how not only how the crime was carried out but often why the you can often tell why it was carried out um, uh -huh. you know, on the crime scene, um, just just based on different things in the crime scene that happened. Yeah, things that we definitely it. don't know. That makes sense. Yeah, and 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 that may give them an indication of you know, uh, you know. Now, if they're saying you know, of course, common sense tells you that if they're telling you, you know, the community is not in danger. I mean, that's a big risk to take unless you know for sure. Um, so if they know for sure, then then obviously there's something they know about it that, you know, about the person who did this that, you know, that they're not saying. But, you know, you, you start to, your mind can go to the places where, you know, that would make sense, right? And and it would make sense if it was a targeted killing. Right. Um, because, you know, the community is not in danger, really, unless it's this random killer who's killing, you know, just by virtue of, of opportunity. Um and that's a scary thing for a community, right? Um, but if if this is for someone, if this is someone who was there to attack and, and kill Missy, then and, and they did that, obviously they accomplished that. Then they're not looking to do it to someone else because they had this was a personal thing. And now I'm not saying that's this in this case. I'm saying that's what could that's a that's a, a theory that could be credible if if they, if if the facts that they know support that. Right, that makes sense. And Renee and I have talked about this a lot. You know, that person had to get geared up in all that garb 
which that probably took a while to put all that on, especially if you're not a tactical cop and you're, that's not something you put on every day. It probably took a while to get that on. And it was pouring down rain and to drive out to that church, um, you know, there's not a whole lot that's close to it. So they probably drove, even if they lived in Midlothian, they still had to drive there off 287. So that's a lot of effort to go just mess around in a church. You know, it kind of seems like, I mean, Renee and I discuss it a lot and we just can't really think of this as a random crime, but there are people out there that think it could be, you know. Well, I mean, it, obviously it could be, and it, you know, but that doesn't mean necessarily it was. And I've actually done this, and this is a technique I used to use too. Um, it, before I watch the video in a case like this, I watch it several times, but I give myself time in between a day, a couple of days, a week maybe. And I, I, I kind of put myself into a mindset where I, I think, okay, this was a robbery. This guy was, this person was there to rob the, the church and um, was surprised by Missy being there. And then with that mindset, I watched the video. Because as, so that, so with that mindset, I watched the video and I make certain notes about the video because I'm already in that mindset. Then I divorce myself of that. And that's why I give myself a, a certain time period. And then I say, okay, this was, you know, this was a targeted thing. They were just laying in wait and they were waiting and they knew Missy. And then I watch it with that mindset. And it, there may be up to, you know, there may be more than two different mindsets that you get yourself into. And when you watch it through those different lenses, sometimes you pick up certain things sometimes, and then you look at your notes and then you can cross stuff off going, oh, that's not right. You know? That's good. But, I like that. That's really great. You know what I mean? Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you almost trance-like. I used to almost call it like a trance-like and I get into a mindset where, because if you only look at it like, oh, I'm going to look at it as objectively as possible. First of all, you're never really objective. You have these internal biases that you don't even sometimes recognize that you have. Um, so if you lean into that, if you put yourself into that and go, okay, today I'm going to approach this as this person was there. He didn't know Missy was showing up. It was a random thing. He got scared and he murdered her because she, she interrupted him with a robbery. Let me look at it through that lens and then wait, wait 48 hours, wait 72 hours and go, okay, no, this was a person who knew Missy. They got in there, they knew she was coming and they waited for, her, you know, and then watch it through that lens, you know, yeah. and, and so, you know, and see if you see things differently, you know, because right. you're in that mindset, but it takes a little work because you've got to kind of, like I said, you've got to kind of convince yourself of different things and really, but what that process does is it, it kind of helps you kind of get rid of any of the, the personal biases you might have about what you think that person was doing there. And so right. by, by, by forcing yourself to probably, because one of those alternatives goes against what you really believe. And right. so by forcing yourself to kind of get into that, that alternative reality where you actually convince yourself you believe that and then watch it under that mindset, you know, it, it opens you up a little bit more. It's right. kind of like, I mean, I hate to say it's like self-hypnosis, but it's kind of like one of these things that you can do to yourself that kind of, kind of can open, open up your mind a little bit. That's really cool. And in this case, I don't know. I mean, look, I've actually done that. I've actually looked at it going, was, was this person there just to rob the church? Um, and, you know, and then was surprised. And, and it, it just doesn't see, look, I've seen, I mean, you, know, you can actually see them on YouTube. You've seen internal video of robbers and, and good robbers and professional robbers. They're, they're in, they're out. They know what they're doing. They know what they're looking for. Um, they've generally cased the joint. So if they're, you know, in the old days, in my old days, like when I was doing 
you know, mafia stuff. I mean, they would break in and they would know exactly where the expensive typewriters were. You know, nowadays it's, you know, they would be stealing computers or electronics uh, and, and they'd be in and out and cat burglars are notoriously efficient. You know, they, 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 they get into somebody's apartment, they know exactly where the expensive jewelry is probably hidden. They know exactly where the electronics are probably hidden, you know, and, and, and they do their business and they get out. They don't, they don't spend a whole lot of time in, in the danger zone, in the area where they could get caught. And so, right. um, you know, and this, but this person did not look like, and at least in my mind, they didn't look like they were there for a specific reason. They didn't look like they were moving with a purpose, being efficient, you know, getting in and getting out. They looked like they were just kind of rambling, wandering around. Right. Yeah. They, I don't know if there was a robber. I don't know if the church, did the church ever report that anything was missing? No, nothing. Oh, Missy's no. ring was even still on her finger. Yeah, it was a real diamond. So yeah, they had a lot of opportunities. Her cell phone was, her iPhone, iPad. Her truck uh, keys, her truck. Yeah. Yeah, all of that is for, for, for somebody that's going to be, you know, even even sometimes that people that are robbing things and get surprised, burglarizing places and get surprised by somebody and then kill them because they panic, um, they do you know they do see those things as cash. They have to get to get things that they can convert to cash. So anything that can be converted to cash, I mean, especially if they've already committed the murder, they take it and then then they they you know pawn it or something or or at least get rid of it. You know what I mean? Um, right. But 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 the fact that you know yeah it, it's. You know, you know, the fact that all that stuff is still there is, you know, there's certain assumptions that can be made based on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just uh, a weird case. You know, it's really rocked this town of Midlothian. Um, things like that just don't happen down there, you know. Yeah. I mean, what do you, what is the, what's the, is there a general consensus in the community about what probably happened or what could have happened? Yeah, there's or really not. There's rumors that fly and people making snap judgments about family members, but they've all apparently are not of any interest to law enforcement that we can tell. Right. Um, so yeah, not really, Renee. What would you say? You live closer in than I do. You know, we hear the, like she said, we hear the same old, same old rumors um, over and over again. And it's none of it's based on anything other than what people just they figure that's, you know, what happened. It's not really based right. on any kind of proof or, you know, evidence. Um, and that's pretty much it. Everybody else is really kind of clueless. It's <laughs> yeah. Why it just never goes away, you know? Yeah, I would say that because you don't hear anything from the investigative team doesn't mean that they don't have anything. Um, you know, cases do go cold, although cases do remain warm even when you don't hear anything for a long time, you know? Um, and then, and then you know, an arrest will be made and then people go, oh, that's why they were, you yeah. know, being cagey. That's why, you know, and, and that happens. It happens a lot. Um, and again, the only reason to release anything is, is it going to further our objective of not only arresting, finding and arresting the person, but in getting a conviction? Um, right. that's the, that's, that should be really the only driving criteria, uh, when you're deciding whether or not to release something. I, I'm sorry, one more safety of the community should also be there. Obviously that's actually the number one thing. So if there's something that you have in your possession that the police have in their possession, that releasing it would make the community safer. You have to do that. That's a no brainer that I, I actually didn't even mention that because it's like, 
you know, yeah, you almost they don't even say it, but if the police have something that's going to make the community safer, then obviously that gets released first and everything else takes a backseat to that. Um, but beyond that, the only thing that should guide the decision of whether or not something should release to the public is does it help the case? Um, now, there have been times where, you know, and, and, and dealing with the family is always a little bit um, interesting because there have been times when you want to give certain information to the family just out of out of courtesy and out of kindness and out of, you know, humanity. Um, and sometimes you go to them and you go to the family and say, we're, we're going to tell you this, but we don't want you to tell the public. And that's tough because they're under no obligation to keep it a secret. Um, and, you know, I mean, you tell them that if you tell the public, um, you know, this could this could hurt the case. And, and obviously that would guide them and hopefully they wouldn't. <clears throat> but, you know, like anything else, families are families and different, different things spread. And unfortunately, by the time it gets to a third cousin, it might not even be very accurate of what the police actually told the immediate family first. Right. And, and then that person is the person that kind of, you know, makes an anonymous call to a reporter, and then then something gets reported that's completely not even accurate. Um, so you know, there's there's times when you don't tell the family because one of the family members might be a suspect, and there are times when you don't tell the family simply because you don't want leaks, um, and the family's under no obligation to to keep the secrets that law enforcement keeps. So um, again, there's that balance that has to be struck. That's why, like, I would always lean on my victim witness specialists who would be interacting with the family. And then they would talk to me and say, hey, can you, can we just give them this? Or can we tell them that? And, and then we would have a conversation with the group and with the prosecutors and with, with the victim witness people. And, and then we would go through that process. And at least now, at least that's what one of the things that was great about that program in the FBI is that it's part of the process now. It's part of the investigative process. Smaller jurisdictions, unfortunately, don't always have that kind of stuff, um, but it's an important, conduit to the family because sometimes the families you know you can get clues from the families too you can get leads from the family as well um so you do want to maintain that relationship with the family and you always have to be mindful that you know they've been they've been victimized in this too they're victims in this as well and so you know you always have to kind of you know have them in your mind and you know so when i said earlier like my only job was to you know that's because i had a victim witness person specialist who was my interface into connection with the family. And, and I remember when that came into being in the FBI, it was in the late 90s, early 2000s, when, when that program really ramped up. Um, Director Muller really saw the need for it. And, and, and I, I, a lot of, almost all the investigators I know and the agents I knew were thankful for it because it was, it was kind of a, a difficult thing for us to do to, to deal with the family. You know, you want to be as compassionate as you can, but there was just certain things that are not good for the case to be out in, 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 in you know, in the public. And, and so um, th that it, it's, you don't always strike the, the right balance, um, you know, and it's, it's a tough, it's a tough thing. Oh, I can imagine those decisions. You get, you get accused of being heartless. You get accused of being, you know, incompetent. You get accused of all kinds of things and right. you try to, you know, like I said, you, you, you try to be as compassionate as possible, but, Compassion is not the thing that was driving me in my investigations. It was, you know, my end result of getting that person who did this in jail with a valid conviction that's not going to be overturned ultimately will help that family, you know, and ultimately will be kind of a compassionate thing. Um, right. 
but the process to get there might not always look as kind as it could or you know as people wanted to look yeah very well put that makes perfect sense yeah it really does but this case is just it's just like i would i would put a lot of like like if you asked me you said okay if you went and in, walked into the police department and you wanted to look at any of the evidence in this case what would it be and my first thing would be the autopsy report i'd want to see mm -hmm. a very detailed autopsy report of of what happened that would in a case so anonymous as this in a case where this person you see is seemingly anonymous. I'm not saying the police don't know who he is. I'm not saying they do. But um, as an outsider looking in, I would want to see, you know, how this crime was carried out in very, very minute detail. I would really want to know the details of what happened. You know, And not um, surprisingly, it is sealed and it has been since the beginning. Sure. And, and you know what, quite frankly, it probably should be. And you know, there are times when even after cases, uh, families have wanted to see autopsy reports and, you know, I've advised against it. Right. Um, because there are, even if you don't see the pictures, which obviously you don't want to see, um, there are certain details in there that you may not want to know because you can never, because your mind's going to imagine them anyway. If you read them on a page, your mind will visualize them even if you don't see the photograph. Oh, um, wow. And, you know, and those... You know, especially if it's a loved one, imagine reading a very detailed, vivid description, a paragraph description of how your loved one, you know, was murdered. Um, oh, wow. Your mind is going to see it, right? Even if yes. you don't see the photograph. And, oh. and then, and forever, those those images that your mind creates in that moment are going to haunt you. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I've had people want to see it and want to read it and the other people that don't and, you know, for me, I mean, once once we get the conviction, I know what's in there, and I I, I could I I could advise, you know, and I have advised people, but they don't have to they don't have to uh, you know they don't have to agree with me. Um, I just try to let them know. Look, I've already seen it, and if I was in your position and that was my loved one, I wouldn't want to know this stuff. Right. Um, well, but, I don't think I would either. Every, That's a good advice. Different. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, um, can can a police department request DFVL's assistance, or there's some kind of requirements yeah. to do so? Sure. No, no. Um, yeah, I mean, in um, let's see, Texas itself has four. Yeah, I think Texas has four field divisions in the FBI. So the FBI has 56 field offices, and so wow. like I know there's a Dallas field office, there's a Houston field office, there's an El Paso field office, there's a San Antonio field office. Um, and, and each field office reports to headquarters. Now, within those field offices, there are what we call resident agencies, which are nothing more than satellite offices. So Fort Worth might have a satellite office that reports to the Dallas division. You know, you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. well, Dallas, Dallas itself would have probably six or eight or 10, I don't know how many they have, um, what we call resident agencies, which are smaller, you know, so there might be a couple of hundred agents working in, in the Dallas field office but there may be 10 agents over here and six agents over there and 12 agents over there. There may be these smaller resident agencies, all which report back to Dallas and then Dallas reports to headquarters in, in Washington. Um, so what happens like, like, like Grand Junction, Colorado <clears throat> had a case and we have three agents assigned to a very small office in Grand Junction. They report to Denver, but the sheriff in Grand Junction needed the FBI dive team for a river search for a victim. And so, 
you know, the detective, you know, they, that's that's the job of those agents, those three agents in a small rural office like that, is they lay, me, maintain liaison contacts with all their police departments and sheriff's offices in their jurisdiction. And, you know, they, 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 they know, hey, we're a phone call away, whatever you need. And so they needed a dive team. They didn't have a dive team. He called the local FBI office, which is three agents in a small office. They called Denver. Denver calls Quantico. Quantico calls us. And so it's, you know, um, there are FBI agents all over the place, not in just big cities. So they're in these smaller offices that report back to the big cities. But um, uh, so there, there's a lot of assistance that goes on on the local level for the FBI, not even in cases that we're not involved in. Well, it's good to know. I, I just always wondered if they would ever ask for, you know, the FBI's assistance, Kim. Yeah, I mean, our laboratory does a lot of work for state and local cases, um, forensically, our, our evidence response teams, although most, you know, most, you know, jurisdictions now have crime scene teams, um, but our evidence response teams, which is our CSI, we don't call it CSI, we call it ERT. Um, but uh, our ERTs often work hand in hand with, with, with their local counterparts. Um, I always do like when we, when we went to the sheriff's, when we went to the shuttle crash in 2003 in East Texas, um, I remember the Houston team, Art Oates was the sergeant, uh, lieutenant. I made friends with these guys and I stayed friends with them because you know the, the Houston uh, police dive team came up. I think the Dallas police dive team, Texas DPS, uh, uh, dive team came up and we were all working together for weeks so we all got to know each other and stuff and you know we dove right next to each other and, and those are you know for, con, you know professional colleagues that you know that some of them I stayed in touch with to, to this day um, right. but, but we're often you know well integrated with our local our state and local counterparts that's good to know <clears throat> yeah that's yeah, I did a I did a I did even did a search I think we did a search in Lubbock is that what Texas Tech is in Lubbock? Yes, it is. That is. Yeah, yeah. We did a, a we did a search in Lubbock for the Texas Rangers, um, in, in a it was a horrible case of a drive-by shooting. They they shot and killed three people, including a pregnant woman who was about seven eight months pregnant and stuff. And mm -hmm. then they cut up the AK forty seven, um, and uh, dumped the pieces in a, in a river and stuff. And uh, I remember the Texas Rangers were there when we were diving. We, it was their case, but we were diving for it. Oh, wow. Yeah. You hear a lot of that stuff out west, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, the, the FBI's often just ask if we, if we, if we very rarely say no when we're, when we're approached by, you know, any other jurisdiction and say, hey, can you, can you give us this again? And one of the things we're good at is, is manpower. Like, we, you know, when, when the shuttle crashed, we probably had agents from, you know, every state around there, Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma. All, all those states, you know, sent agents, hundreds and hundreds of agents were walking through the woods looking for, you know, pieces of debris and things like that. So we were, we were always really good at throwing a lot of manpower. You know, when you, when you have a missing case, missing person's case, especially a missing kid's case, and you're doing those arm in arm searches out in the woods and it takes a tremendous amount of manpower and a tremendous amount of time and effort. You know, the FBI was always good at kind of marshalling resources like that and sending them downrange and, and, and giving assistance in, in cases like that. I was involved in a number of cases like that, you know, in yeah. my career where just where you just pick up and you go and you don't know how long you're gonna be gone. You're gonna be living in some motel somewhere for a couple of weeks and, uh, but you're gonna be, you know, you're gonna be helping and you're gonna be, you know, providing valuable, you know, assistance. And then, you know, it's not our case, but, you know, we're there to help. 
Yeah, it sounds like a hard but very rewarding job at times. Yeah, it was extremely rewarding. Um, sure, absolutely. I, I, I would, you know, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat. Um, uh, there are. Uh, that being said, there are, you know, there are obviously there are prices to pay for that. Oh um, yeah, spend, absolutely. When you a lot spend of time, time away from home. <laughs> you know, well, that yes, um, but you know, in, in the category of things you can't unsee, is you know your first dead child. Um, yes. That you pull from the water, um, who's been the yeah. victim of a predator, you know, um, you know those kind of things, um, you know, never go away. Um, you never, you never, you know, you never unsee, you know, especially the kids. The kids always stay with you, right? The, the kids who were who were victims of violent crime and, and put in the water. For us, there were, those recoveries were, you know, the most difficult thing we could do. You know, I, I've seen, you know, the old, the old. Cliche, I've seen grown men cry, and and absolutely, I have. Um, um, in the right place and time, you know, you do your job, and then you know, when we're all having a beer that that night, and you know, spending that one last night in the hotel before we go home, um, it's the time that everybody kind of has together because you don't want to do that when you get back home to your families, um, right. particularly the guys, particularly the guys who have kids. Um, yeah, you know, they want they, daddy. They want they want you know those kids want to jump into daddy's arms. You know, and the last thing daddy has to be is upset and, you know, he has to kind of get that good, you know, get that good cry out, you know, um, before he gets home. Um, because, mm. you know, because that child that he pulled out of the water that, that day might have might remind him of his own. Kid. Yeah, I can't so, even, you know, it's a different thing. emotional toll. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's it's one of the, the gifts that keep on giving because I'm retired five years now and there are still times when, you know, I, I'll see a movie or I'll see a TV show that triggers a specific memory or something or a case that mm. has to do with something like that and I generally don't watch um movies that involve missing children or, or children victims and stuff but but you know sometimes they sneak it in on me and I don't yeah. realize it's part of the movie and right you know, um, but you have to know your triggers and yeah yeah but my wife's very good at knowing the triggers and she she she'll advance screens things sometimes and oh, right so probably be okay to watch yeah, yeah. Um, we have, I guess there's one last question that we have. Um, there's been a, a lot of talk amongst people and, and stuff about the um, FBI's UCR database. Mm -hmm. uh, have the murder listed, the, of course, Missy's case um, in 2016. It's listed as a crime with a handgun. Is Does that mean, first of all, is that report actually done by the FBI? And if so, does it mean that she was killed with a gun or does it mean that a gun was involved as in found at the scene? Like, how is that interpreted? So the Uniform Crime Report, the UCR, the, the, the Uniform Crime Report is not, is not um, FBI investigations. Those are reported to us by the local jurisdictions. Um, okay. So, so, so that, and, and so we rely on, on, you know, the, the, the legitimacy of their information. That, that so, so it's really a compilation. It's a compilation, right? The Uniform Crime Report is is basically a statistical listing or a statistical analysis of all the information that we get. And there's there's kind of like a check the box forms um, for reporting it. And um, there's been talk for years of making it mandatory, um, but it's not mandatory. And sometimes some jurisdictions are much better at reporting than others, and and stuff. And so. Um, uh, it all depends on who's filling out the form and how they read, you know, the questions and the check boxes and things like that. So, 
like it's hard to say it might you they the fbi might not even know if the handgun was used in the in the crime or was just found at the crime because the person checked you know or checked the box that a handgun was found but didn't check the box that it was used or or whatever whatever that means it's really ucr is really it's really used to, to spot you know trends in crimes and 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 patterns in crimes and things like that the individual the individual the information in there um is not enough to make individual cases case you know assumptions or case you know theories or anything like that because it really oh, is okay. it's a summary it's a summary document and the, the report itself the ucr itself is is really a statistical uh tool that policy makers use to kind of allocate resources you know to different programs and stuff based on what all of the you know what all of the trends are that are seen in, in these statistical analyses well thank you for clearing that up we've been wondering about that for a long yeah. time and yeah is, is murderdata.org is that the same renee you know I don't know. He might know. I have. I've tried to research it. Isn't that where we found it under murderdata.org? Yeah. Yeah. It's listed in both. Because everyone has always said, "Oh, that's the FBI," but apparently it's not. So that's really good to have that cleared up. Yeah. UCR is. I mean, we do. The FBI has a bunch of different things it does um, for the law enforcement community at large. That is really just a, you know, a clearinghouse. We we we're just a recipient of all this information, and then we kind of put it into a. You know, a usable form for policymakers or for you know people that might spot the trends. Now, VICAP is a little different. You know, VICAP is the program, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. That's the, the VICAP is the program that you would put in specifics of a um, of a case. And um, and in fact, Texas had had a good case that that VICAP was help help solve, which was the um, was the little remember the the serial killer the black individual, a uh, little, um, what was his, um, what's his first name I can't remember. He was arrested in Texas, then ultimately sent back to Los Angeles. He wound up admitting to killing over ninety people. He's, he's oh, the most. Wow. Um, but uh, there was one particular Texas Ranger who had a case, and he put you know this the specific details into VICAP, and then some analyst in West Virginia, their office in West Virginia. That's kind of the office of my cap runs out of, I think. Um, you know, they saw, oh my God, this particular case in Texas has very similar earmarks to like three other cases in two other jurisdictions. And so they made the connection. And then and then they realized there's a guy sitting out in jail in California about it. So that Texas Ranger flew to um California, to Los Angeles, and he interviewed the guy. He did a masterful job at interviewing him and and then they started looking into BICAP at all these other like data points of similarities with crimes. And then they started getting off. And ultimately, I think now they're they're I think they're over 90. He's admitted to over 90. In fact, is it Samuel Little? Samuel Little, yes, that's it. Um that's yeah, and in fact, he's he he gave such details of these murders. And after a while, and he was old, he's an older gentleman when they when he apprehended him, and he he really wanted to help. And the, the the ones he couldn't remember, he was very, very good with locations. He was a little bit off on his date sometimes, but he's very good with locations. And he 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 started drawing the faces of the women he couldn't remember their names for, because he used to remember the, all of their names. And 
then his his age, I think, caught up with him, and he started forgetting their names. But then he, I mean, they have a sketchbook of all his, like almost like an artist of all these, and then they they published these out there to see if anybody could identify them. Now they're not photographs, obviously, they're his own paintings from his own memories. Um, but they they made sure that he had the material in his cell to be able to do that. But Vicap is the program where you'd put in um, the details of a case, you know, in in Midlothian, say, and then somebody in Kenosha, Wisconsin you know, put in, you know, a, a something very, very similar at their crime scene and VICAP's the program that would make that connection. Oh. And they make those connections so much more quickly nowadays than I guess they did long, long time ago before. Oh, of course. Computers have, that's, yeah, one of those things oh, where awesome. if you can, if you, and, and, and there's a whole art in, in the science in digitizing certain crime scene elements that don't lend themselves to like numerical classifications, wow. but how do you then how do you then, you know, datify them in a way that they're going to be common to, you know, another crime scene? So that's a whole thing, and you right. know, and you, exactly. you kind of learn how to do that, you know, and and stuff, and 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 they've done a really good job of that. But VICAP, V-I-C-A-P, that's the program that, you know, if for example, if there was a particular, you know, thing in Missy's autopsy that's very odd that the medical examiner says, well, no, I really saw this, but you know, the, and then you put that into VICAP, and you know. You know, you, it might pop up somewhere else on another case. That's the that's the VICAP is the case the, the program that makes those connections um, between you know between crimes and between crime you know details of, of things yeah. like that. That's so cool. That is yeah. cool. Um, you know, we we use it a lot with in criminal minds in VICAP because oh, you know yeah. that that's that's how you catch a serial killer is that because they're traveling from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but but they often have a signature or they often have you know, commonalities and how they treat their victims and stuff. Yeah. And VICAP is the program that, that often, that you know. helps those crime shows so much to have actual, a real retired FBI agent, you know, person being a, the consultant or the writer. That's awesome. I love that we're seeing more. Yeah, that. that's that's why I'm both consulting and writing right now for, you know, there's always, there always seems to be FBI shows on, on the air, you know, on some network or another. And so, Yes, that's great. We want them to be realistic. You know, that's cool. Yeah, you played on a couple of them, right? What's that? Were you on a on a couple of the shows? Yeah, I, I've actually, yeah, I've I've appeared. In fact, the episode of Criminal Minds that I wrote, which was like the fourth one before it ended, um, I kind of gave myself a cameo in that. I I didn't have any speaking lines, but I'm I'm a bartender behind a bar in one of the scenes, and um, and I was in Criminal Minds Beyond Borders, the, the spinoff show, is where I got my start, and I. I, I did a few stunts, on-camera stunts in that, um, in addition to being a consulting. You know, but now I've really moved into the writing and I want to be in a writer's room and I really want to be at the, at the heart of really the writing. Consulting is great, but I really want to be doing, creating the stories and, and, and you know, from my own experiences, but, but really kind of doing the writing. And that, that's kind of what I've been, I've been focused on now in the last, in the last it few all, years. It all sounds fascinating to me. Um, you know, just I, I've always watched those shows and been so interested in all of it. And um, it, it was really sad when it ended, when Shamar Moore left, when um, Ted, the, the blonde left. I mean, it was like, OK, I'm done. <laughs> you know, yeah. we all watch it. It's so popular. Well, I was there at the end. You know, I was part of the staff at the, right in the end. And after 15 years, there were a lot of tears shed um, oh, because yeah. people, there were some people you know, I came the only the last couple of years, but there were people that were on that show from the beginning and they basically grew up on that show. And, you know, even some of the actors had never 
you know, uh, they've been on that show for 15 years and, and boy, there was, it wasn't a dry eye, eye in the house the last couple of weeks on set. Oh, and, I, can uh, you know, I can imagine. And, and watch, watching the set be taken apart. Some people couldn't even stand off watch, but, you know, watching the jet, because we always had the scenes in the jet, um, the, you know, and, and uh, yeah. yeah, it was, it was it, every show opened and closed with the jet scenes. And um, it was pretty tough to watch that stuff get dismantled and stuff. It was kind of the end of an era, but, you know. Right, absolutely. You know, every, wow, you've done some really cool stuff. Yeah, well, there'll be new shows. There's, there, yeah. you know, there's new shows about the FBI now on, on NBC, and there's a new show called Clarice coming out that's um, basically, you know, Silence of the Lambs. Remember Jodie Foster's character, Clarice Oh, Starling. yeah, um, Clarice. The, this, this new TV show picks up that character three years later, three years oh. after, because if you remember that show, she graduates the FBI Academy at the end of the show. Right. And, oh, uh, that's right. You know, and Hannibal Lecter is now out. He's in the Caribbean going, you know, and, um, you know, because he killed all those police officers and he escaped. So Clarice, the new TV series, picks up that character three years later. Now she's an FBI agent. She's out in the field um, and she's, you know, doing cases. So it's the Jodie Oh, that's going to be so good. Is yeah. her actress playing Clarice? Um, you know, I should know that. It's a young actress, very, well, very good. Um, but if you look up on IMDb, it should be on IMDb. It's it's not on, out yet. I think they're they're just starting to film it now, and it'll be probably on air next year. Awesome! Like, I'm yeah. definitely gonna watch that. Yeah. So, well, Bobby, we cannot, we cannot thank you enough. You've just been a sure. fantastic guest. Thank you for spending part of your evening with us. We can't thank you Absolutely. enough. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Anytime. So appreciative of all your knowledge, and thank you for being so generous to share it with us and our listeners. Sure. Well, thank you. I mean, you're part of this new age where keeping these cases alive really a lot of times is what gets them solved. So thank you guys for spending your time doing this. Um, I know there are probably times it's a thankless job and, you know, with social media, you, you know, you're not always the most popular, you know, you can, it can, it can, it can <laughs> yeah. probably seem thankless sometimes, um, but thank you for, 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 you know, doing this and, and dedicating yourselves to this. And thank your listeners. Well, for, thank you so you much. Know. We're hoping any publicity can help her case get solved. And thank you for helping us with that this yeah. evening. We love talking. Absolutely. To you. And I know our listeners are going to love this episode and we look forward to continuing to follow your career. So yeah. Thank, thank you so you. much. Maybe thank we can you. talk again when it gets solved. That would be fun. <laughs> yes. Let's okay. do that. Awesome. Okay. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Good night. Bleep
those back. Straight off the block, black, black. 12 on the clock. I paint cash. cash, cash. You do the math. Yeah, I bust the bag. Yeah, yeah. You take the tab. Yeah, yeah. I cut you fast. Yeah, yeah. You had a gas. Yeah, yeah. Skirt off the block. Yeah. 12 on the clock. Yeah. I paint cash. Yeah, yeah. You do the math. Yeah, I bust the bag. Yeah, yeah. You take the tab. Yeah, yeah. I cut you fast. Yeah, yeah. You had a gas. Yeah.